Greetings from the Cosmic Horror. The stars are right once again. The great old ones are going to allow us to talk about for 30 plus minutes H.P. Lovecraft, the horror writer who is a genre onto himself. I'm your Cosmic host, Mark Griffin, executor of the Lovecraft Estate on Yagov, joined in by two from Material World, David Guffey, a professor from Mispatonk University, and Richard Wilson, who is currently taking up Inns Malfian cooking. Today's guests are Ruth Anna Emery and Anne Elm Pillsworth, who collaborate together for Lovecraft Reread and get girl cooties all over old Howard's original stories. Uh, thank you all both for coming. Thank you. And, um, uh, Anne, I had a question that's probably bothered me the most of all the, uh, reading your profiles, you live in Edgewood, and it says it's a Victorian trolley car, trolley car suburb. What is a trolley car suburb exactly? Well, it is a suburb back from, I guess, around the, uh, turn of the 20th century, probably before then too, where the major city, which in our case would be Providence, was connected to its suburbs by trolley cars that ran on rails rather than buses, etc. So in some places, the archaeologists can still find the old rails. And as, as you might remember, Edgewood figures in the case of Charles Dexter Ward as the place where Joseph Kerwin the vampire found many victims. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask because you also said you live close to his underground laboratory. Yes, it's right down the street. It's within walking distance. Oh, wow. We haven't found the entrance yet, though. I think they hit it pretty well. Hit it pretty well. <laughs> right on the river. So one day when the waters are low enough, we'll find it. Yes. And uh, so does living in Providence give you a better connection to Cthulhu Mythos then? Well, I actually, when I first moved to Providence, I was going to go to Brown University because I wanted to work on Lovecraft. So that was when I first came to Providence. And since then, it is a special city. I can see why Lovecraft loved it. And then, of course, you're close to a lot of places that he wrote about, including Edgewood and Patuxet Village, which was where Joseph Kerwin hung out. And then, of course, the mysterious church that Nyarlathotep was hanging out in the steeple of. The Shund House is still there on Benefit Street. And you can peer in the windows if you dare. <laughs> of course, Benefit Street is, has a lot of the old houses, even going back to about to the 1700s. So. Do you ever like go by some of the houses that Lovecraft lived in during his adult years? I have fact, I don't, I think I must have at some point, but I, yeah, well, there's the last one he lived in, which is the one I think the tours go to, the last one that he lived in before he died. And, okay. Yeah, so I don't know that I really, I'm looking for his houses. I'm more looking for the houses that he wrote stories about, yeah, right, which yeah. is what interests me more, because the houses he lived in have changed a lot over the years since he lived in them. Uh, someone once did make me a birthday cake in the shape of Lovecraft's house. So. <laughs> Impressive. Yeah. And about Ruth Anna, I've understood that I mispronounced your name. It's Emrys. Is how you say that? Yep, everyone does it. Yes. Like, if I'm going to find a way to mispronounce something, I will find it. You know, it's like, you know, I'm, you know, that my apologies in advance for that. It's a superpower. Yeah, it's, it's my ability. You know? yeah. And so uh, how did y'all first hear about Lovecraft? Um, oh, I bumped into sort of the uh, plush Cthulhu end of the mythos in college. Um, I had a lot of 
friends who like to play Call of Cthulhu, a lot of people into the Principia Discordia and Robert Anton Wilson, a lot of people making jokes about the great old ones coming back. And so I got very into the whole mythos without actually reading the original. And eventually I decided that I ought to go and read the central stuff. And it's got me so mad that I ended up writing about it just to get to argue with the guy. Yeah. What about you, Anne? Oh, I was reading Lovecraft back when I was in grade school. I remember very well first going into the bookstore I used to hang out in. I must have been in sixth or seventh grade, and I came across those famous book covers of the heads Mm-hmm. Those where the heads like cloud head and the green dripping head with glass shards coming out of it. Were those, just the, all... um, were those the John Holmes covers? I might be. Not They're to be very... confused with the porn actor, but a different person. Yeah. You know? yeah. And then there was the rat head with the worms coming out of its eyes. But of course, that attracted me at once. <laughs> So they had like, I guess they had pretty much all of Lovecraft's work in that series of paperbacks. So, of course, I had to buy them all. And that was the beginning of that. I might have read them a little earlier in an anthology like Call of Cthulhu or something. But that was the real trigger. Yeah, it makes it fun to blog together because especially when we were going through the original stories, many of which were new to me, she would always be, you know, talking about these book covers and these deep childhood memories. And I would be just, you know, gasping anew at the first exposure to a really cool alien or a strange turn of plot. And it makes a nice contrast and a nice conversation. It is interesting, you know, it came from different ways, you know, one of you was like, you know, grew up reading them, the other one was kind of like, you know, like, had not read them until like after playing the games and stuff like that. And um, how did y'all decide to do Lovecraft rereads? Um, so I had been, I, I had read a few of the stories and I was starting to write Wintertide, but I, I had already had the first novelette um, with Aframarsh out and had gotten sort of pushed to write the novel based on it. And I thought, well, I had better make sure that I am have read everything that Lovecraft has done just to make sure I get all the interesting little details in and don't miss something that's going to get some guy to come up to me at a con and say, you have contradicted this bit of canon accidentally. On purpose is fine. Accidentally, I didn't want to do. So I thought, well, is there any way that I can get people to you know follow along with doing this but I, I don't really want to do a long rewrite blog post series all by myself I, I know how I am I'll, I'll get bored I'll get behind things I need something to keep me honest and Anne had just had a Lovecraftian story out in tour.com as well so I, I, I emailed you kind of out of the blue yeah yeah well that was I had mine was coming out uh the story I wrote, The Madonna of the Abattoir, yeah. is the one that you read and that they put up in Tor.com just before they released my novel, Summoned. So that's where you you saw that. So y'all didn't know each other beforehand? No. Oh, wow. wow. That's cool. It, it, it was totally a cold call on my part, and it was a very, very good one. Because <laughs> yes. I don't know who else would have had not just the patience, but the continued excitement this many years later and this far from our original focus. But it, it's still fun. And we're, you know, I, I still look forward to getting Anne's parts of the blog posts and the, you know, Going off on these odd little microfictions about Kolchak and Kolchak, yay! Oh yeah, she likes when I write it in Kolchak's voice, <laughs> or maybe you don't, but some people do. 
I would have I to live with it. I like Cole's hat. I'm too busy to write my blog post this week. So my friend Carl Kolchak is going to write it for me and then he would take <laughs> off. Gotcha. He had many adventures reading stories and then going to speak to the uh, protagonists and usually bad things happen. Do you wear a hat with it as well? or? <laughs> I love the hat. Yeah. I saw I saw a guy at a con who had it, the outfit down perfect, but he wouldn't give it up. So. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine so. Um, Ruthanna, I have a question. Did you say that Winter Tide was originally a novella, or were you talking about a different work? I was talking about The Litany of Earth, which came out first. So there okay. was a novelette there, and... Uh, enough people asked for a novel that I started thinking about what I had to say a novel's worth of stuff about. <laughs> okay. I, I just, I just wondered because I, it seems like maybe I had read this story before, but I don't think I've read the book. I don't know. I did just, there was something familiar about the, uh, about the story. And so, Anne, why, why did you take a cold email from Ruth Anna and decide to like, you know, do this with her? Well, I knew that, uh, when did, uh, yeah, I must have read, it. in fact, the two stories, the one I had in Madonna of the Abattoir and the Litany of the Earth appeared within a couple, three weeks of each other. So I had read Ruth Anna's story and she had read mine and we were both like, wow, well, I was blown away anyway by her novelette. So I knew who she was from that. And I said, hey, that'd be pretty cool. But to do all of Lovecraft, and uh, and of course it's fun to do a blog on tour.com. So I said, let's do it. Now, did y'all decide to like you know we start? Out, like we started out with of all things the thing on the doorstep. Okay. Which you had a good reason for, Ruth Anna. I don't remember what it was. You, I, wanted, you had to look into the uh, story of, uh, because it figured in the novel. In, but I don't remember if I actually added that plot line before or after I read it. I think it was just because it was the other one with deep ones in it. <laughs> oh, yeah, there, sort of. But anyway, that was a good one. I like that one. I like it more and more. It didn't used to be one of my favorites but it's grown to be one because the sexual dynamics in it are so weird so much chewy gender stuff and it's yeah, not normally yeah. much of gender anything in love right. mm. yeah that is one of his like um i guess i guess like i guess we call her female you know it's, it's hard to know exactly how to, what pronoun to use when describing you know when, that yeah. story you know it's like a but, but that is that was when we started out and that was a great start so did y'all just pick random stories or did y'all like pick any order for reviewing stories or there wasn't a formal order it would either be like what one of us is in the mood for or sometimes what one of us felt like we needed to read for specific research so if i wanted to read lovecraft with a specific set of aliens that week um or if i was in a really grumpy mood i always wanted to get a hazel heel collaboration because those yeah, are always yeah. so much fun yeah it's like yeah. I, I really like y'all's um like a rereads because it's like you they're they're very insightful and like like call cthulhu i'd like them I um, talk about like, like many of Lovecraft's stories, this one is an exact advertisement for the advantages of knowledge. Rather the reverse, here's that the familiar quote about the merciful inability of the human mind to correlate its contents. Learn too much and you'll go mad or go away glibbering. You know, so I mean, <laughs> and like shout out for Innsmouth, you know, talking about like, you know, that um, it's something I noticed too when I've been rereading it, that um, most of the information of, like, of the narrator he gets about Innsmouth is all secondhand information. He never talks directly to any of the native citizens, you know. That, yeah, except mm -hmm. for the old drunk. Yeah, but he's but he's a human one, you know. He's not like you know, one, yeah. one of the deep That's ones. Classic unreliable narrator, and it's uh, really not on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. was very reliable, actually. So yeah. that was a great thing. Yes, and I, and I I also. Zadok said, I believe every single word. Yeah. <laughs> I did at the time, too. Yeah. And uh, Rufin, 
Rufana, that's when you reveal that you're a deep one apologist, you know, in that one. So it, mm -hmm. it, unsurprising to everyone. Well, that we will. Rufana is an apologist for everybody, but I am too, especially for Nayar Lapatip. He gets a really bad rap. <laughs> I, I I sort of still side eye the Migo. Like the, the, there's not really enough consent going on there in taking people out of their bodies to go and yeah. see the universe. Yeah. <laughs> like, it could be fun, but if I were on Yagat, I'd kind of want to be in a position to smell what it smells like. <sighs> yeah, I think that your favorite race is still the Yith, right? Oh, I, I, I love these. I'm not even an apologist for the years. I just forgive them. <laughs> <laughs> they're librarians. How could you not forgive them? They're, 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 they're such wonderful librarians. And, you know, yeah. it's not my species that they're sending back to deal with an apocalyptic <laughs> crisis. <Yeah>. So <laughs> They are very fascinating, especially how you presented them in um, Winter's Tide. Uh, which we'll talk about um, uh, later on. But uh, Medusa's Coil, I thought this was probably one of your more very interesting, which you called Lovecraft's most bigoted collaboration. And um, I love this one quote, Cthulhu was always the god of the enslaved and of the oppressed, those who've fallen from the glory and those who never had it. I suspect Lovecraft sought to betray Cthulhu not as the last resort of the afflicted, but as the god of a revolt against the rightful order, who overturns all that is good and sane and civilized. At some level, let's see, Fred Clark points out this implies awareness of such a revolution could be justified and would certainly be well motivated. And so I never thought about like Cthulhu being the god of the oppressed, but I can see it quite a bit, you know, especially when reading his things. Mm -hmm. No, he, he always shows up and everyone who isn't the upper class white Anglos is secretly worshiping him. Got to be a reason for that. Sure. Me so, so I guess we should be actually be pushing for like Cthulhu to come, you know, since <laughs> well, some people are, yeah. overthrow. Yeah. 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 Bring the rightful order. Um, is there any review that you're really proud of? Either one of y'all? Like, you know, when y'all really want to brag about? Oh, Mm. Not a specific review, but my favorite piece of feedback on the series is still, um, I was in a Necronomicon panel, I think it was actually on the King in Yellow, and the moderator introduced me with respect to what was at the time still the Lovecraft reread and is now reading the weird and said it's one of the few places on the internet where the comments are worth reading and we have okay. such a great set of commenters and we've had people you know come in and do like, you're trying to erase Lovecraft's memory thing oh, wow. and you know we sort of gently point out that maybe having a years-long blog series dedicated to the guy is not the best way to erase his memory <laughs> um and you know, sometimes we manage to bring people in to have a more nuanced conversation and then people also have their in jokes but it's just it's it, it is. It's a nice place, and I'm really proud of our commenters. That's a nice to be able to cultivate something like that. So many yeah. comment sections and boards and that type of thing kind of degenerate into the loudest, more, most toxic and aggressive people. So to be able to. Uh -huh. And like Tor.com has a great set of moderators, but even so, sometimes I see other people posting about Lovecraft there. And man, the moderators get a lot more to do there. <laughs> Probably so. Yeah, I'd imagine. <laughs> Uh, we're real polite. We're so polite. We don't give them anything to do whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so your your novella or short story, like Litany of Earth, uh, that's basically kind of like you for writing about the, um, uh, I guess like your sequel to Shower Innsmouth. So did you read Shower Innsmouth and decide, you know, like this needed a sequel or were you just curious about what may have happened? So... Like I said, I had a lot of Lovecraft by osmosis, and I thought I knew what happened in the story. And the way that I was reading the originals is that my wife, Sarah, was reading aloud to me from a Best of Lovecraft anthology while I made dinner. And she read this one to me, and it starts out with 
saying that what's going to happen is that the people of Innsmouth are going to get taken to a concentration camp and that this is a good thing. And weirdly, this does not put me in a position of feeling sympathetic to the people who put them there. And so as I was listening to this, I was listening, you know, with the perspective that the narrator is a guy who's going to put people in a concentration camp and, you know, yelling at Sarah about this. And then I stomped around all evening and I kept saying, no one really wants a story about the oppressed fish piece of Innsmouth right I don't need to write this and yes. she kept saying yes you do yes you do and yes, just to tell you how long ago it was my live journal readers were saying yes you do yes you do and so I wrote a story that was not the litany of earth and was a little too on the nose and that never got published except that I drew a couple of scenes out of it for flashbacks eventually in wintertide and then while that was going around and not getting any interest I wrote Litany of Earth as the second Aphromarsh story and I started sending that around and Tor.com sat on it for a year and lost it and then I resent it to them and then they bought it. Wow. And but it, was, it, it was pretty much just you know I, I couldn't help thinking about what do the fish people do in the concentration camp? How is that the same as the other experiences that people have had in concentration camps and internment camps? How is it different? And, you know, I, I was not aiming to be timely. I was aiming to have the whole idea of people getting stuck in camps be as obviously horrible to everyone else as it was to me. And then um, the, like the week that Wintertide came out, people were talking seriously about internment camps for immigrants. So um, it was, a, I, apparently these things are not as obvious to other people as they are to me. <laughs> And you drew a lot of the inspiration for the internment camps from the like the Japanese internment camps. Oh, yeah. And par part of the way that Litany of Earth ended up happening is that as soon as I was thinking, OK, people are going to into internment camps in 1929 and the ones who don't die are fairly long lived people. And it just sort of seemed natural to me that when we got to the point of World War Two, that the government would take advantage of having a camp already set up and at that point mostly empty and everything else kind of followed from just the logic of that. <sighs> but, you know, I, I, I read memoirs um, of people who'd been in the internment camps. Um, I actually read um, George Takei's um memoir that started out with his experiences there as one of those and um, some of Afra's new relatives ended up based a little bit on his family because he just described in such detail. Hmm. Yeah, he did. A, he also did a graphic novel of it, too. Uh, which, mm -hmm. So he's um, so uh, uh, so you just planned that being a short, just one story, didn't you? And like you got a lot of feedback and some people are saying you need to write more. Yeah, the, you know, the, the first couple of comments on Litany of Earth that said, I want to see a novel. I was like, yeah, that's what people say when they like a story, which is in fact true. Every time you write a story, people like you get a couple of things saying novel, especially if you're me and your idea of an ending is and then people make an interesting decision um, and then by the time I was down to 50 comments and uh, you know email from uh, from an agent and an editor saying have you thought about writing a book about this I thought maybe I should have some book stuff to say so was it difficult to write a novel? I mean, is like, did you feel like you exhausted all your ideas or did you find out you had more ideas to write about? I wouldn't have written it if I hadn't found I had more ideas. I, 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 I'm very much, I, I, I have to have like something thematic. And once I have something thematic, everything else 
just sort of builds up around that. And it's hard in the sense that like writing, writing is hard. Um, but it, if, if I hadn't felt like I had the stuff to say, I wouldn't have said it. <sighs> No, you're right about the deep ones as if you actually like, you know, visited Inn's mouth and actually swam with them. I was just wondering how, what, did you have like a group of people in mind when you wrote about them or did you just use your imagination? I mean, mostly imagination, but also my experiences growing up in Eastern Massachusetts um, and, you know, every time I, write about made up religions there's always a little bit of my assumptions from being jewish in there so every religion i have ends up having the sort of you know the idea that you're always going to be arguing with deity and not necessarily expecting all of your problems solved and your enemies smited um <clears throat> A lot of imagination, some some experience, like anything else. Uh, you added kind of like a, had a very interesting deep ones culture, you know, like introduce more books, even cookbooks, you know, stuff like that. And epic. Poem. That, that was a lot of fun. And the, Anne and I like going back and forth with the imaginary books. And um, one of her books showed up in the library at Miskatonic in in Wintertide. And, you know, some of them were just drawn from various people who I'd been talking to and other people who were publishing Lovecraftian stuff. One of the things I really love about writing Lovecraftiana is just this tradition going back to Lovecraft of everyone gets tuckerized into everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> And um, you kind of like introduce your own little mythos as well, you know, you, or you contribute to the mythos as well. You have the uh, Ionis, uh, the people who worship uh, Cthulhu, Narcolithotep, and um, Hydra. And so you kind of like, you know, introduce new elements as well. And um, where did the, where did they come from? Uh, the the Ionis? Um that was just you know if you're going to write from the perspective of a religion you need to think about what the religion is and not just write like lovecraft was trying to write it more or less in the same way that he thought of real religions that were not the one that he'd been raised to be skeptical of and was writing very explicitly as an outsider of those scary people over there if you're actually going to be writing from inside the temple you need to have some idea of what happens and what draws people to it and it's also one of the interesting things was if you're writing about the religion as a scary thing then it needs to be very powerful and you know on the verge of taking over the world if you're writing about a religion of the oppressed then you need to write about it as something that has very limited capability to actually <clears throat> you know solve those problems and so it's a more distant set of gods and a more stoic philosophy and uh, you also like uh, brought back one of the lesser known schools that um lovecraft had you know as even josie forgot to mention it in his um encyclopedia uh the hall school you know it gets one line in um Thing on the doorstep. And what's that? And that's the thing on the doorstep, right? It wasn't even clear in thing on the doorstep whether it was a college or a girls' prep school. But I needed um, a girls' school for Miskatonic, and I kind of stole that one and ran with it. Um, my um, my late mother, may her memory be a blessing, was a Pembroke graduate before Pembroke became part of Brown. And so I had from her this sense of the relationship between the men's and women's schools in that time period and the ways that there could be both empowerment and marginalization on the woman's side. <sighs> 
Mm-hmm. And um, I also saw where you, you spelled Shognigraf uh, a little bit differently. Uh, you took out one of the extra G's. I guess that was intentional on your part. Yeah, it was just the original was a little too close to an unpleasant word that I did not want to use. And Lovecraft did that on purpose. And I figured it's being translated, transliterated from the Enochian anyhow. So, you know, just like Hanukkah, I can spell it how I feel like. <laughs> so would you would you pronounce it differently then? Like Shug Nigeroff or something like that, Dan? Dropping the, drop the double G. Yeah. Probably the- depends on the dialect. <laughs> or Nagoroth, perhaps. Nagura. Shub Nagura. I like that. Yeah, there we go. And um I there was one insult you had in Winter's Tide that I really loved. It was like, may your eldest ancestors die childless in a tar pit. I hope never to see your eyes again. And I don't know. I love that line right there. That's, I, I want to say that to somebody, you know, sometimes. Keep it in your back pocket. <laughs> for the Sun right. Trumbull was <laughs> so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. Wait to use this line. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I just, I, you know, I, when, when I was a kid watching Next Generation, I always loved the Q episodes. Like, but there's nothing like an overpowered, snarky immortal and (laughs) it was also great because it's such a pain writing historical stuff because you'll be going along and you'll be writing something and then someone will be like oh the the word alien as a description of people from other worlds didn't exist yet there were no plastic bags no you can't make a reference to dna won't be discovered for years and every time that happened i would just let time traveler talk about it that's a good loophole to have that is. and um you made a mention in winter's tide that you said you had uh, the best beta readers so you have people like read your stuff like a wide group of people yeah Anne was one of the beta readers there um and lila wexner garrett who um does editing for Strange Horizons, um, various other friends and with different backgrounds. Uh, but I always look for, you know, s- someone who's going to want everything to be as intricate and oblique as possible and someone who's going to want all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. And for this stuff, I also, I wanted people who love Lovecraft's work and people who hated Lovecraft's work and people who had never read Lovecraft's work to make sure that it was something that would, you know, connect to all of those different ways of looking at the material. So you just didn't want to be a story that only Lovecraft fans would love. You wanted to make sure that a wide audience. And um, and uh, but why was that important to you? You know, why not just like cater to the to the fan base or something like that? You know? I mean, I've been coming in from outside when I started all of this, and I I, I like to have to have people be able to have Wintertide as an entry route as well, and you know, something for the people who like the mythos but don't want to deal with the you know bigotry and nastiness in the original and stuff for the people who see what's really cool in it as you know i'm right on that border myself i always describe it as a love hate letter to lovecraft and something that i could write because i also one of the things i do respect about him is how willing he was to let other people play in his sandbox and you know he made the sandbox big enough that even the monsters can play in it so i know that he would have considered me a monster but he also made it possible for me to write as the monster (laughs) both of those things matter to me That probably was his, you know, one of the biggest gifts he gave, you know, it was like he created like this universe, you know, that we can all join in. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that August Dorliff, you know, tried to rein it in a little bit, but he wasn't quite successful with that. And uh, I understand that some of the characters in uh, Winter's Tide are based on some family members, uh, like uh, Ron Spector, I think he's based on your great uncle. Uh, Well, it's more of that. So I was going along and writing him with out my great uncle in mind at all and then at one point i was 
this is one of those minor details. I was trying to figure out if he'd be wearing a hat. And I got into an argument with my wife, who is very into historical costume, about whether he'd be wearing a hat. And she said, well, your great uncle was you know, doing similar sorts of work around that time, ask your mom for some pictures. And so my mother being a librarian herself, and the person who was the keeper of our family tree, sent me not only pictures, but also a lot of stories, and bits of my Uncle Monroe's FBI file, because he was you know, he, he was caught up in the Red Scare and accused of being a communist. And there were so many things that just connected to uh, Spectre's life that I ended up bringing in a little. And then I thought, well, maybe the fact that, you know, I had this Jewish great uncle living in New York around that time and dealing with government stuff himself is part and who was himself gay is part of what made me maybe subconsciously think of this character in the first place. <laughs> and I've got a lot of characters who are named after, but not otherwise, this is very important because they're mostly nasty people, modeled on um, members of my wife's family because there was an Upton already in the individual and the Uptons are a big part of her family. So I just started grabbing other surnames from her extremely waspy family for the upper crust of the <laughs> Yeah, there was like, you had like an apology at the end where he says like, oh, my in-laws will forgive me for borrowing a few names since I didn't ask permission. You know, Lovecraft populated Mispatonic Valley with Uptons, the Skinners, the Turnbulls, and the Crowthers. Crow Crowthers? Crowthers. Crowthers. And so you actually had Uptons in your family? Well, uh, my wife's family, yeah, she, she's got Upton, she's got Crowthers, and, you know, so the, there are Trumbulls, none of whom, as far as I know, are actually ancient abominations <laughs> or keeping the archives of the universe. Sorry. <laughs> uh, were they familiar with Lovecraft? They, like, kind of roll their eyes, you know, at him, you know, he's like... Yeah, I think that... My stuff is the only Lovecraftian stuff they've ever read. So they weren't they weren't familiar like going, oh, he, he told me how Lovecraft defamed their name, their family name or stuff like that. <laughs> they, they took it in good spirit. <laughs> and, um, and and I don't want to leave you out. I just want to talk about your uh, some of your short your stories. The Madonna of the Abattoir. Uh, you have two servants of Narcolethotep. Uh, and they're sent on the artist, James Pickman. I'm assuming he's a cousin of the famous Pickman, you know, in the Lovecraft story, since he's also an artist. I think he's a little bit before the infamous Pickman, but I got in a terrible, the first comment I ever got on that story was getting ripped down because I used Pickman for my artist. And apparently that's an evil thing to do. Because it's too obvious. Oh, okay. <laughs> too on, on the, the nose. <laughs> and actually, he wasn't at all like the other Pikmin. So, but anyway, I thought it was fun. Yeah. I, yeah. I thought it worked. He doesn't. And at know this anything. point, we could give them a list of people who've written about Pikmin. So. No, that's true. They're modern Pikmin that we read. It's a Pikmin. whole story. It's a whole family. And then there was another good one we read about a Pikmin in modern times. So that's one of the great things about the blog on Tor is we started out doing all Lovecraft because there was still a good size body of it for us to attack. And after we did a few Lovecrafts, we decided, hey, we should do his collaborations. And we started pulling in the collaborations and then after you a while, pushed me into it, I, I was terrified of the modern stuff. The, you didn't want to do the collaborations? No, not the collaborations, the modern oh, stuff. Oh, the modern stuff where people were still alive. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, but later on, after we had kind of run low on Lovecraft and Lovecraft collaborations, and I think the first story, okay, we said, well, let's do some of Lovecraft's circle stories because most of them were dead, right? So nothing to worry about them being offended by our comments, <laughs> I hope. And the first one, I think the first one we did was what? I, I was just looking back today. Negotium Perambulans? 
No, that was after. It was one of his own circle. And it was it wasn't the return of the sorcerer, though. That was one of the early ones. It was what? The hounds the hound of Tindalos. Did we do that first? It might have I think been. that was the very first one we did. I'd have to check again, but anyway, so he said, well, we should do a circle. So now we had Lovecraft's own stories, Lovecraft's collaborations, Lovecraft's immediate circle. And then it started to expand out from that into anyone from any time who did Lovecraftian stories. So we started getting a lot of delicious modern stories. And more general weird fiction. Yeah, and then now it's morphed from, because we ran totally out of Lovecraft, except for maybe horrible. We've got some yeah. juvenilia left, I think. Yeah, which we said, no, we can't. we did that really bad one. What was it, the one that was a parody of my, of romances of the time? You guys oh, yes. Yeah. Sweet Ermengarde. That, that was great. That was funny. That one, that one was... I said, we can't go any lower than Sweet Ermigo. <laughs> so we That's started. That's kind of a guilty uh, pleasure for me. I like that one. Oh, really? Yeah. Was, I actually have read worse romances from the period. Than <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it, it, it was funny. I like that. When I was reading uh, Victorian pulp. There are some even worse than that. Well, he was making fun of that um, that writer, Fred Jackson, who was very popular at the time period. Uh, and so he was kind of like his, his parody of Fred Jackson, you know, who is really deserves to be parodied. Yeah, well, I haven't read him. And if he's worse than Ermengarde, I'm not going to read him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, so we, we had expanded and we started to do some modern ones like uh, Shagas and Bloom. That was one of the. Mm-hmm. earlier ones we did this great great number of them and and then if we could ever find foreign ones we love to bring those in if uh-huh. translations. translations are always great there are so few of them uh, Anders Fager was that the oh that was so good Bora, that was a great Curious from Bora <laughs> yeah and, and so- Japanese ones we've been finding because there are whole books of translation of Lovecraftian mm-hmm. Japanese fiction. Yeah. That's wild. Uh, so is it nervous, like, you know, trying to, I mean, have you heard from a living author, you know, some of the stuff you reviewed? You know, it's like, and have they been, most have been, you know, nice, or they've been like, a few have been like, you've you got this they've all mostly, so well. They've mostly been nice. Um, David Drake showed up to say that our interpretation of one of his stories was completely off, which, you know, fair. Um, <clears throat> we're at the point where people get very excited when we cover them, which is really yeah, kind of exciting I, myself. I, I and get, get new um, writers. That's my favorite thing is to find a new writer who's done. Uh-huh. Well, now we can do anyone who does weird fiction. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's so great because I remember I was always thinking, wouldn't it be great if somebody would read one of my stories? Craig Lawrence Gidney told me that he actually saw the bump in his sales after we covered Sea Swallow Me. So Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, we're we're influencers. There you go. (laughs) You're welcome. Influencers. Yeah, there you go. So David. I don't remember any except for uh, Shirley Jackson's son. Yeah, she she showed up to kind of work quietly on the Hill House reread. Yeah. Yeah, So David Drake writes Lovecraftian fiction? He wrote one thing. um, What's it called? It took place during the Vietnam War. Well, we did. Didn't we do one in Belgian Congo? Yeah, something darkness. And red, then see. Curse the darkness. That's it. Curse the darkness. Yeah. yeah, I didn't realize. And I, I did, you know, my usual my usual thing about man. I'd really like to see this from the point of view of the local people who are doing this invoking. And he was like, you know, I had been through this, 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 and this. And how could you imagine that I could write from anything but the perspective of the people who had been traumatized by being on this side of the fighting? And you know. 
fair. I, I, I haven't had those experiences. He has that. He wrote the story that he wrote. The only like... one we haven't read yet is the, uh, the one that we haven't read yet because of our nerves about it is what was that? It's the, uh, the shadow over what? Uh, the doom that came to Innsmouth. To uh, the doom that we came. we haven't re- we haven't done it because I just hate it so much and I don't want yeah. to reread it. Yeah, it's it's unnerving to me too. You know, what makes it so bad? Um, it is uh, it, it it is a story about how some people really do deserve to get sent to concentration camps. Oh. Yeah. Wow. So the narr- the narrator who is is a deep one is really of an unlikable deep one, a really really unlikable deep one. Oh, that uh, that made me think of something. Um, have you seen um, that comic book called Miss Matonic? It was like what, Mark Sable wrote that. Yeah. Uh, it, it has a storyline that kind of made me think of Winter Tide, and I was just wondering if he kind of borrowed elements for if you thought and you read it and kind of like go, yeah, I can kind of see he made because he has like I haven't read that one, and it's a it's not quite as good as your book. He kind of like almost like throws everything in. He'll it's a Lovecraft blender type situation where it's spot the reference and that type of thing. Those can be fun. Spot yeah. spot the reference is a fun game, but it, but he does things like you know, sorry about the rats in the walls, you know, you know, it's, you know. <laughs> things like that you know which is like it gets really annoying but you know uh, the Ensmalpians get sent to like a concentration camp uh there's a yith who travels you know in the body and stuff like that and so when i was you know i was like going it's like i'm just wondering if you like you know read you know your work and Kelly borrowed from it and all that and whether you were like going know, but now i've got to read it because i <laughs> anything with a yith in it i will read <laughs> yeah he did uh it was a four-part miniseries and then they did kind of like a um a, a a larger almost like treasury size of um one special and all that and it's um it's almost like it, it started off really good i love the first issue but then all of a sudden it just like almost like you know it's like a train wreck after that yeah. Miss Matonic? Yeah, Miss Matonic, you know, just like the university. And it's like um it was aftershock comics that did it. So I was just ah, cool. I will look that up. And then uh, going back to the Madonna, uh was there anything that inspired you to write that story? Well, I wrote that I the first thing that inspired me to write the story was an image. I, a lot of times my stories will begin just with a very bright, very somehow significant image that I don't yet know the significance of and I don't know the story about. And that image was the woman drinking blood off of paintbrushes. And I said, oh, what's this? <laughs> and in the world is she doing sitting there drinking story behind it. off paintbrushes yeah and i said and then the title i think even before that i just thought the madonna of the abattoir was a cool story title yeah that is a very so cool. i had the yeah. title and i had one image and then i had <laughs> my uh i said oh it's obviously this has to involve my two novel characters redemption orn and his wife patience and so once i knew it was about them then it just came all into a bit of their backstory since they've all, they've lived many many centuries they have a lot of backstory to fill in so they they've appeared in stories before well they're in the, my two novels that are published so far the, the, the summoning they're summoned and summoned, uh, on fa- or rather not fathom, fathomless, mm-hmm. summoned and fathomless. And we'll be in the next one. And they're just going to go on forever because I love them. Yeah. <laughs> what do you like about them? Well, I love, love Patience Orn, who is a sort of a, a undying or at she's weird. I have this weird undead thing going on where vampires are undead and some other people are undying and there's a lot of different, but the way you get to be that way is through Nyarlathotep. So that's how 
that's my vampire origin story is it has to do with receiving the gift of Nyarlathotep. And, but Patience is just a badass. That's why I love her. She has no remorse. She's just totally in it for herself. And for her God, she does respect Nyarlathotep too. And Redemption Orn starts out as a minister in Puritan Arkham. And so he is someone with wonderful, wonderfully complex conflicts, because obviously if you're a Puritan minister, going over to Nyarlathotep is a pretty big step about which you may have qualms later on that patience wouldn't have because she's all in. So that's why I like him. I, I just like that kind of character. Yeah, Patience was the more interesting character in the story. You know, she definitely was enjoying what she was doing. Oh, yes. She was having a good time, you know. Oh, yeah, it's, you know, it was poor, but, but poor Pickman, you know, it's like, you know, he was just kind of like a, an oh, earnest artist. I felt bad for him, but <laughs> he had to go. It's just the way it is. So I don't like, I often don't like to let people go, and I'll get to a certain point in story saying this person's got to go, and then I won't because I get to like them too much. So that can, with people who prefer George R. R. Martin killing off everyone in sight, <laughs> go over too well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you build this character up and you just killed him off? That's how I feel. But other people like that. So. It yeah, definitely keeps the stories unpredictable. You know? mm -hmm. And uh, your first published story was... Um, is it Geldman's Pharmacy? Is I say that name? Geldman's? Yep. And um, it read your band in Night Terrors number eight. And um, has that ever been reprinted? No, not yet. Because it was a, because it, you had to send me a copy in order to find it. I did, you know, I had the hardest yeah. time trying to find a copy. It's been gone for a while. Yeah. And it was never on the internet. So it was just a paper. As far as I know, Night Terrors was always paper. Yeah. And what was the inspiration behind that story? Oh, let's see. That was from a painting by Edward Hopper, which shows that exact picture of a pharmacy at night on the corner. Yeah. And it has two jars hanging up in the window, one with red fluid and one with green fluid in there in that teardrop shape. I said, what is that about? And I just... I love Hopper. He's just so, I can write stories from Hopper because everything he does seems like it must have a story behind it. And all this, there's no people. It's just a pharmacy at night, pretty much exactly as I described it in the story, except it wasn't Geldman's pharmacy. It was somebody else's pharmacy. I don't remember who. So I wanted to figure out what what's this pharmacy about and who lives upstairs of the pharmacy and what's in those uh, urns that are hanging up in the window. And it took a while, it took a long while for me to figure that one out. And that had an artist in it too. It looks like I like to torture artists. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed uh, there are a lot of painters. Or, yeah. Know. A lot of painters in there that get tortured, but he came out all right. In the end. Yeah. So do you paint yourself or is that just something you just like writing about? You stuck paint, and it's like every decade or so, I decide to do some art, but not recent. Okay, and uh, then you did this, and then you have your summon series. And I'm, I apologize, I didn't get a chance to read any of them, but I've heard it's compared to like HP. I mean, excuse me, Harry Potter meets Cthulhu Mythos. Is that an <laughs> accurate description for it? Well, it is about it is about young people who are magicians. They discover they're magicians. It's set mostly in Arkham, and the the, the an idea behind it is that uh, the Miskatonic University has a society within it called the, uh, the uh, what's it called now? 
Do you remember Ruth Anna? See, I can't even remember my own story. This is what I have Sarah for. I, yeah. I remember the society, but I don't remember what it was called. I, I just love that it's YA Lovecraftiana. Like there should be more yeah. of that. And there's basically your stuff and the one anthology. I've actually been waiting to to see something like that happen myself. I just think it's, yeah, a, it's, it's a wide open market right now. Yeah. But there, uh, the society is uh, Al Hazred is in the name. I can't forget, can't remember now. But they call themselves Abdul's Irregulars as their their little nickname, and it's a society of people who know about the Cthulhu mythos and know that they're real. And Lovecraft was one of them back in the day. They've been around for a while. And they're centered at Miskatonic University. And one of the things they do is they need to be aware of anyone who starts showing signs of magical potential because they realize that if they're strong enough, they will attract the attention of Nyarlathotep, who is the master of magic, as I call him. And so the protagonist, Sean, proves himself to be somewhat magical by summoning one of the minions of Nyarlathotep, who, of course, is not very nice. And so he gets involved then with the people at Miskatonic, who will take over his education, because you can't just let magicians run around unsupervised. Because if you do, Nyarlathotep will find them if you don't find them first. And there aren't very many. It's not like a regular school, big school. It's more like you might have two or three of them at a time. And um, you have uh, you have two novels and also, the, the I guess, like the tie-in with uh, Madonna the Abattoir. Is there a third one being planned or anything? Yeah, third one is written, and I have still to edit it, so... Yeah. It needs a lot of changes, so yeah. <laughs> do all those big changes. My editor made a had a brilliant insight that totally ripped the whole manuscript apart. So, ouch! One of those, but it was brilliant. It yeah. was a brilliant insight, so it needs to be followed up. Structural edits are the nemesis. <laughs> oh yeah, like totally structural. Well, you know that's a. I guess it's it's better to have have that found, you know, before it gets published and all that, you know. Really. Yeah, yeah, because it would certainly improve it a great deal. Because there have been like several stories I've read at times. I wish they had like the editor had intervened, gone like, no, 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 you can't go this way. You know, you, you know, it's like you can't write this story like this. This just won't work. You know, I, I feel yeah. like too many to novels get stories, short stories get published about the editor just basically just rubber stamping it, you know. No, so yeah. you get, you're always very grateful after you got the edits done and before. Yeah, Why yeah. can't you just tell me it's perfect? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what years. you want to do. But yeah, yep. So I've had good luck with editors and beta readers. A lot of good beta readers. So you have, uh, so you got some beta readers too, as well. You know, who check everything. Well. At the moment, I don't, but I have my wife, Debbie. She's a novelist also, and so we both do each other's novels. And I actually like editing. I could see wanting to do some editing. Editing your stuff or editing other people's stuff? I like to edit other people's, too. So when I've been in writers' groups, I've liked working with other people to edit their stories. It's just something I, I like editing. It's like some people hate editing their stories, but I actually like it. And what I'm particularly gifted at is I will always write a novel at about 250,000 words, and then I'll cut it back to 100,000 words. So that's my great superpowers. I <laughs> things by huge amounts. So that comes easy to you. You're not like going, man, I got to keep this in here because, you know, like it's, it's, it's important or like you're somehow attached to that one paragraph or something because you really like how it's written. 
I think I just explore in the first draft and a lot of stuff becomes extraneous because it was exploration. And when I have everything in a pile, I used to compare it to what you're doing, you're getting a big pile of clay on the desk in front of you and you just keep piling on more clay. But once you've got the clay there, you can start to do something with it until you have the clay there. You're just sitting around staring at the ceiling. (laughs) Once you have the clay, you start cutting away, cutting away and shaping here and cutting away some more. And that's that's an image I like to use and suggest. I just just get it all out, you know, because a lot of people's problem is not writing too long. It's writing nothing at all. Because I always end up adding 10 to 20,000 words in edits. Uh, do you write short? You write short then, and then you. Edit. Well, I think you, you remember Wintertide ended up like the, the whole first bit of that got added after Carl told me that I needed it. Uh, yeah, well, that's the way it's some people write long, some people write short. And I've always written long. I had to teach myself how to write short stories. I'd written several novels before I ever wrote a short story. And then I, I don't know how to write a short story. I think it was Orson Scott Card who said it was like different languages. Short stories are one language. Novels are another language. And so if novel is your native language, you're going to have to really concentrate to teach yourself the new language of short story. And some people, of course, can speak them both. They're bilingual from birth, like Stephen King, you know. <laughs> True. That's an interesting way of putting it. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. able to, I can see that, you know, because a novelist, their point is to write as long as possible. And a short story writer is supposed to be like, you'll be as condensed as possible. And so, you know, they would be conflict each other. Like, it's so um, a certain mindset. I would just, I just think long. I think really long and I think a lot of scenes and a lot more dialogue and, and just cut it down. I like cutting down though. The more I cut down, the better I feel. And it's usually a lot better. I find I have to do that with my blogs too, because I will, I do all the summaries and they can only be a thousand words long. And sometimes that's very difficult to summarize uh, you well, have summarized some extremely difficult to summarize things. Yeah, yeah. So I'll usually start out, well, the whole blog has to be 18,050. And I'll start out at about 2,500, and now I have to cut it. <laughs> so do you just cut out words, or do you like actually like retype words as well? Both, both. So usually I... I find I just write, I'm just being verbose. The first time I write things, I'm being more verbose. And I will always find a way to make it sound more succinct. So a lot I'm not cutting, I find in novels too, I'm not cutting out content, I'm just cutting out words. That's the way I am, I'm just verbose, I guess. Verbose. But as long as you know you're verbose, (laughs) because... Nobody wanted a 250,000-word young adult novel. (laughs) Good point. That's a fair point. Unless your name was Rowling, then they wouldn't mind it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, usually during the program, I, like, pick out some word um, and kind of, like, discuss it. um, And the word I want to discuss is the the Oxford comma. Do you know what an Oxford comma is, either one of y'all? Um, that sounds like a trick question. Yeah. No, it's a, I understand that you have quite a crusade with the Oxford comma, uh, Ruthanna. For, for or against. Yeah, would you care to elaborate what exactly is an Oxford comma and what exactly your stance is on it? it? If you have a list of three items, you should have commas between all of them, each shoots and leaves. Yes. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. And all that. And so where did that come from? I mean, it's like, you know, well, is there a particular reason, you know, that you, you know, you know, are like very strong on this opinion or anything? Um, 
I cannot say where the Oxford comma itself came from. My my preference for the Oxford comma comes from my preference for clarity in language, and it's also genetic because my mother was considered Oxford commas to be very important, such that you know we yeah she she, she was an editor at heart, and I got that from her. Now was your mother Linda Debbie Gordon? In fact, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I, I found a, a, an obit for her, and uh, she seemed like quite the impressive woman. I have to say, she she was. We, we loved her a lot. And, uh, and she worked at a library called the Snow Library. Yep, she she was a librarian. Uh, that's the main library in Orleans, Massachusetts. Since I was twelve years old, and she was. By the time that she had stopped working, when she got sick, the very much the senior person there by many, many years. When I first heard the snow library, I had a visual image of a library that either collected snow or it was made out of snow and all that, you know, but it was, it was named after somebody named Snow. So snow is one of the, the big old families on Cape Cod. Yes. Anyway, anyway I guess we'll wrap up and then uh, david richard and our guests i see the stars are no longer right we must cease all discussions until they align again next month 30 plus minutes of hp lovecraft is sponsored by gilman's pharmacy which can help you for night terrors this podcast is creating association with lovecraftpod.com and logan speculative fiction group with the help of the lone county public library and the great old ones special thanks to katie tyson for being the final boss and joshua dukes for the analog horror until we meet again, may you avoid the colorful urns of Princess Cthulhu.